You're listening to the Local Open Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Heath. And today we go into part two of our interview with Paul DeMarco. You'll recall that Paul is a very talented and busy songwriter, singer, and producer. He maintains a busy schedule, hosting songwriting sessions with fans that follow him on Facebook, producing songs for clients, releasing his own material regularly on Spotify, and even having his songs placed on cable and TV productions in the sync world. Remember, Paul has an EP scheduled for release at the end of November. We'll continue to talk with him about that too, but first, let's get to a little business just before we return to the interview. Local Open Mic can be found on many social media sites like Facebook and Instagram, and for all the latest shows and information, bookmark localopenmic.com in your browser. Our podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more streaming sites, so be sure to subscribe to the show so you won't miss any of our exclusive and personal interviews with musicians, songwriters, producers, and anyone else we think is important for you to know about. Without further delay, let's get back to our interview with Paul. That you're a hardware guy too, I like that. Did you start out doing rock music? Was that your first love or did you, you know, what, what did you cut your teeth on musically? When it comes to creating, I mean, I'm very diverse in my taste, but when it comes to creating music, my very first instrument, if we don't count the recorder, the tin whistle when I was in school, my very first instrument was a keyboard. Uh, I was a huge Jean-Michel Jarre fan, so I was big into synths and stuff like that. Uh, but I was listening to lots of rock and blues music uh, and the Beatles and the Stones and Zeppelin and all that stuff as well. Uh, but actually, what I did, I, I, I bought a uh, Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet um, uh, keyboard book because I wanted to learn the keyboard parts in that because that's what I was playing at the time. There was always a guitar in the house, but I'd never really picked it up. Uh, but then I noticed in this keyboard book, there were guitar chords above the on on the on the staves on the on the music and i thought okay well i'll have a go at that as well so i picked up the guitar and started learning these shapes i remember learning the d chord because it was um it was the chord in wanted dead or alive <laughs> and i remember go. i remember playing that d chord which i, I call the triangle chord uh, i remember playing that chord and it sang to me in a way the keyboard hadn't i love playing the piano i love playing the keyboard i'm not a great keyboard player um, but there was something different about the way that guitar resonated with my body. Uh, and it was then that I started creating and writing music as well. So, so that, that was the, that was the portal really. That, that's where it started. Um, and the great thing about that was the music I was, I was in love with at the time, which was rock music, blues music, uh, uh, soul. They were all guitar fueled anyway. So it just set me on this path where I could now just really, really get stuck into it. And I, I love, I love, love, love the instrument. I, you know, if I'm without my guitar, it's like part of me is missing. <laughs> so do you remember the brand of that house guitar that was hanging around that you used? Yes, I do. It, it Well, here's the thing. It was actually a, a classical guitar. It was a Spanish classical. And I did, I did an unforgivable thing. Uh, I took the nylon strings off that guitar. I no. think it was an I think it was an Antoria 
um, uh, a classical acoustic guitar. I took the nylon strings off and I put steel strings on this guitar. <laughs> and I'm not joking. The the fretboard was like it was like stringing up a kitchen table and trying to play. It was so difficult. We just lost I... half our audience. <laughs> sacrilege. Uh, it was sacrilege. It was sacrilege. And the the and it was totally the wrong thing to do. So people don't do that and the reason why it was the wrong thing to do is because the, behind the bridge the body of this classical guitar started to swell and it started to rise up because it couldn't handle the steel the steel string i, I will tell you though later on down the line i did take those steel strings off and i put nylon strings back on that guitar uh and then i sold it to my brother because i wanted to buy an epiphone j200 <laughs> that's a nice guitar it was good. It was a good guitar. Yeah, it was. It was a good guitar for me. Uh, if I had, um, if I had all the money in the world, I would never sell a guitar. I would just buy, buy, buy. Uh, but over the years, you know, financial consideration and responsibilities, um, I I sell to buy, uh, and um, yeah. So I've had some, I've had some great guitars along the way, uh, and I'm a junkie when it comes to guitars. I really am. I've regretted every guitar. Every time yeah. i've sold a guitar i've regretted it every Same time here. i uh, there's just not a guitar if i had the space i wouldn't keep for the off time i would go grab it and play it because for me it represents in terms of my musical life a period of time where i caught a vibe of something that i was able to write to that maybe sometimes you know it's really the instrument that helps lead you down a path on a song uh, and just changing up yeah. the instrument sometimes spoils the moment. Yeah, completely. Okay, Paul, all of that is really uh, very fascinating. Let's talk about one of the other songs you sent me. Um, it's called designs on you. It, it's definitely a rock song. It has a Tom yeah. Petty feel to it. It's, it's totally eighties rock as far as I'm concerned. Um, what, what led you to write that song? Um, maybe talk about some of the instruments you were using when you wrote it, because that's what we were kind of just discussing. Yeah, well, that's a really important song to me, because uh, it was when I started online writing. Um, obviously, Nashville is the mecca for songwriters. Uh, however, I never thought I would have the opportunity to, to go there. How would I ever interact with people there? Uh, then I joined a online community called Songtown, which is run by Clay Mills and Marty Dodson. Now, uh, Clay and Marty are both hit songwriters. They've had uh, hits uh, with Darius Rucker and Trisha Yearwood and, and you know, all, all the guys, uh, most, mostly country, but, but, you know. And it's a great community. Uh, and Clay put me in touch with two writers in that community, uh, Lucy LeBlanc, who's from Little Rock in, in Canada, uh, and also Bill O'Hanlon, uh, who, who's out of Santa Fe. Uh, he also used to be in and around Nashville. Uh, and so I nervously went into my first co-write with them. And we did it over Facebook Messenger, uh, video messenger. And so all of a sudden I was in the room with what I considered to be Nashville writers. And that was exciting because I never thought that would happen. But the wonders of technology allow it to happen. Um, Bill brought in this idea where he'd been to an optician's appointment and 
the optician was covered this uh, female optician she was covered in tattoos and it made him think it, it, you know it sort of surprised him initially and it just made him think what's the story there so he brought that into our co-write which was just a discussion and, and a story that he was telling and we turned it into this story of this guy who goes into a coffee shop uh, and the girl that serves him catches his eye and she's got this little tattoo on her shoulder and it just makes him think you know what what's the story behind behind this girl uh, and from that designs on you was was born so i i um i i produce the song and i i play everything on there it was great to be able to get my guitar out and uh, and let and let loose so let's uh play that so people know what i'm talking about why i'm excited about this song why i think it's a uh, you know it should be make it even on the radio everywhere but uh this is called designs on you Well, that is an amazing song. Thank you. 
did you come up with the music first or was that a collaborative effort with your pals? Well, yeah, well, he, here's a little thing actually, which I've, which I've learned through doing co-writes, which is really interesting. Um, uh, it's always good to turn up to work, which is what we're doing, uh, with something. Um, it's very difficult when you're in a write and everybody comes into the room and says, right, what shall we write? And everybody tries to find something then that you're going to write about. Um, so I'd actually come into the room with, with that intro uh, guitar part and the, and the chord changes uh, and a slight melody as well. Um, and it, it changed as we were writing it. Uh, so Bill bought the idea. We came up with the title together. Uh, I had the music. Uh, but it, it, I can't stress enough, when you are co-writing with people, even if your ideas don't get used, take them with you. Just make sure you have something because you don't know what could happen in that room. Uh, and uh, that, that's something that I've learned and I, I still do now. I have this philosophy about writing. Uh, you may uh, identify with this, that even a bad song you need to finish writing so you get it out of your system. And yeah. the irony is, is sometimes out of those songs that you could never record, you would never do it. There might be a vocal phrase or a chorus or maybe part of a verse that still resonates with you. And there's nothing yeah. holy or, you know, special about it. You just lift it and use it in another song. I mean, who's yeah. going to know, right? You didn't yeah. release the song, so. Absolutely. It's a great, great way to do it. So, okay, so we've covered a lot of current things. Stepping back to the next part of your life back there, what led up to your current living situation and uh, as that relates to maybe music and just whatever, however you want to flesh it out? Okay, well, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd gone through life, through school, uh, and I never took music in school because I never felt that, they were going to teach me something that, that I was going to enjoy and, and, and find value in. So I, I schooled myself, really, and that was just by listening to music, studying the artists that I loved, figuring out what it was that they did, trying to be the best guitar player that I could, trying to... And singing, actually, was 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 a second-place thing. I, the only reason I started singing is because I started writing. I, I never considered myself a singer. Um, and for, for those out there who... It's easy to hide behind a guitar. You can't be hide behind your voice. Um, so it's quite a scary thing. But for anybody listening who maybe needs that little bit of confidence when it comes to uh, to, to doing vocals, um, I went from considering myself a guitar player who just had to sing because I was writing uh, to currently doing vocal sessions for for Nashville demos. Uh, you know, and that amazes me every time because I still don't consider myself a singer, but others tell me they enjoy the way that I sing. So, um, so don't don't write yourself off uh, because uh, thing, things can happen. So, uh, so I was in and out of bands, uh, just just trying to play music, to write music. Uh, I was always teaching it as well, uh, but something incredible happened about. Uh, nine ten years ago when i met my current partner she uh she's been this probably the single most important change in my life because i was always told growing up that i had to get a proper job um music wasn't the way to make a living it was a hobby uh but my my, my partner now fee she she said to me you're good at this why why 
why are you what i was window cleaning at the time actually why why are you doing this when you could you could create a, a living um in music and it was the first time anybody had ever told me that uh and and so i did so from that day on i started trying to find a way of of, of doing that whether i was teaching or producing or gigging or writing uh i just turned and and now today uh, that is my job. My my job is one hundred percent music in its different forms, and um, and I love it. They they say if you love what you do for a living, you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> That's and what I, they I add, say. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's totally true. It's totally true. I I get up in the morning, uh, and I've got a, a home studio, uh, a building that I built right next to the house, and I get up in the morning excited to go to work. And I feel very privileged and very blessed to feel that way. Uh, but I've got here through a lot of hard work. So do you earn your full-time living as a musician? Yeah. So so what I do is I, I would say probably 50% of that is, is teaching. And I, I work with um, children in school who are... Uh, what we call neat so sure. they're, they're children who are, are perhaps close to being um, expelled or they have behavioral issues and they get pushed aside and I work for a company uh, called Rewise and we go into the school we take this group of kids who are what they would call problem kids and through the medium of songwriting and music production we just try and help them to grow in confidence and to try and communicate in a wholesome way uh, what they're feeling, and it's it's the most um, amazing thing to be part of. Uh, so I would say that's fifty percent of my income. The other half of my income comes from producing demos for songwriters. I never did personally well in the producing demos. Uh, it seemed like everybody wanting to do demos back in the day uh, didn't have the money. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> it's a little different now. But uh, <laughs> back in the day, with you know having to schedule uh studio time differently than you do now uh yeah. studios are markedly different and the production uh methodologies are different than they were many years ago too for that reason but uh okay so that's good a lot of people will be i, I know interested in that part so okay so 10 years ago you met your partner and uh, what transpired to get you to your current situation so um so we we fell in love which was an amazing thing <laughs> and um we're 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 perfect for each other life isn't perfect and um we've had we have our challenges like anybody uh however we've been such a source of support for each other uh in in what we do and um and that just gives us this platform to be, to make a success of anything that that we do, uh, and so yeah, so so I started building um, my uh, my company, I guess if you want to call it that, uh, my musical um, uh, company, and and just have it in all its various forms, uh, and I'm able to do that from home, which is brilliant because it means when lockdown happened, I could still work. Um, I might not have been earning what I was earning before, um, especially with the teaching, because that stopped for for a while and is still very uh, very limited. Um, but um, still able to 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 write and create music, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful thing. So, do you have any university background that prepared you for teaching at risk? 
Yeah, you... good question, actually. I, I, I stayed on a, a, at school. In the UK, you do your compulsory education, and then you either do uh, A-levels or and then go off to university. I never went to university, but I did do my A-levels. I did an A-level in English literature, uh, in history, uh, and in art. And um, I chose those subjects because I didn't know what I wanted to do for a job. Well, I did. I wanted to do music. Didn't think it was possible. So I chose three subjects which were quite broad. And you, what we need to, rem, what I've always reminded myself, is that everything that you have done in the past, leading up to this moment, has been contributing to where you are. And I realised that my English literature has helped my songwriting. My art has because it's creative, and my history has given me an understanding of social backgrounds and social events and to be able to use those in my songwriting. So I didn't know at the time, but I was learning how to become a songwriter. <laughs> yeah, some things sneak up on you, don't they? You just suddenly, whoom, wake up one day and you you know you're a songwriter. Yeah, so, completely. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I wanted to touch on this just uh, briefly. You mentioned about singing, and uh, um, sometimes people are uncomfortable with the the idea of singing, they get uh, shy. I was the same way, even though when I would sing, I always got compliments. People liked my voice. And you'll probably uh, identify with this that it wasn't until I bought recording equipment and recorded myself a lot that I, I got comfortable with my voice. You yeah. see, when you record it and you start listening back, you're actually hearing your voice the way other people do. Because, you know, when you're talking, you're hearing something in your head come out. It's not the same. So that when you finally record yourself, you're going, that's why a lot of people are shocked. They'll listen to that and go, oh, I sound like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes that may be a bad thing, of course. But uh, in my case, I had to get used to what I sounded like. And once I did the singing part and the performance part actually all made great strides in improving. And so uh, I imagine that the students you teach hit a point where they have that kind of epiphany too. They've heard themselves yeah. enough and they go, oh, okay, yeah, I can live with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really important part of, of developing and growing um, because I think you can be more uh, objective when you're listening back to something. Uh, the amount of times that I've recorded a track, uh, whether it's a vocal or an instrumental track, and um, at the time I've gone, cool, nailed that, that was perfect, exactly right. And then I listen back to it and it's terrible. It's just not good enough at all. And then other times I've finished and I've gone, mm, not sure about that. And then I've listened back and gone, actually, no, that's much better than I remember it. So, you know, the only way to know that is to listen back to what you've done. And the only way to do that is to record it. That's true. Uh, you know, I've become a little bit of a collector of recording uh, gear. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of stuff I buy now, I could never afford it when they came out, you know. So um, I have, uh, of course, my Zoom products. And uh, one of the things that I have that I I really like is that uh, I, I think it's under the boss name, came out with a, a small little handheld recording device called the BR... Micro BR8. Oh, yeah, the micro. Micro 80. It's the, yeah. it's the 64 track, uh, not yeah. the four track version that has some virtual tracks, but this is the 
eight top tracks with, you know, eight virtual tracks under each of those. And the reason I got it is because it is almost, in terms of technology, a carbon copy of that VS880 I bought in the mid-90s. It has yeah. the same Cosm effects. It has all that. So, uh, And then I have, a, I think I have a little Tascam field recorder that actually overdubs. It allows right. you to, oh, so it's a sound-on-sound device it's not merely a field recorder so i have a few other things like that lying around too well i i, I remember listening to an interview with um i try to remember who it was i think it was i think it was a guitar player called phil x actually uh and it, it was interesting because oh no it was paul gilbert actually from the band mr big and i i remember listening to him explaining something and me going I did that. I did that. And it was this before I ever had recording devices. I used to take two cassette players. Oh yeah. And I would record, I would record on one and then I would turn it up and play it back. And then I re re would record myself playing over the top of that into the facing uh, cassette player. And then I'd take that tape out and put it in the other cassette player. And then now what I have is two tracks. So I would then play that again and then sing over the top of it or play bass over the top of it or drums and record. And I would be back. I didn't realize back then, but I was bouncing tracks. I, you know, I was, I was overdubbing and I didn't know what I was doing. And the sound was terrible at the end because there was so much tape hiss <laughs> and room noise. Uh, but I didn't care. As I, I was, I was making, I was, I was abandoned. It was just me on my own. I loved it. You know, I did that in college. I had a, a college roommate that introduced me to that. He had he had a couple of decks and and showed me how he would run. Uh, we'd record something into a microphone into one deck, and then yeah. we would have that deck playing through the loudspeakers. They were they were de it was a decent sound system in college. I had a great uh, uh, some great audio gear and so we'd play it through these really good speakers loud enough that of course the microphone would pick it up yeah. and then we always we always knew how far from that microphone we would have to be to play and sing yeah. so that it would layer correctly and yeah. you know by the end you know you couldn't do it too much before like you said it just becomes nonsense but doing it say three times you could get some interesting phase shifting things going on that you didn't you didn't realize yeah. but listening back to that stuff it's kind of fun to listen to that and yeah that's how i got started too uh, my first introduction to i'll call it loosely multi-track recording but it, but it's great i mean we we need to remember that that's how the beatles were recording back in the, you know when they started they were recording to two tracks so all they all they could do was they could just play the play it live and then just do whatever they could as an overdub uh, and we're talking about the records that we listen to now and we go wow that sounds amazing yeah. but th they would they were doing just that i heard a really interesting story uh van morrison brown eye girl uh, the bass guitar and the tambourine is actually on the same track because they they were just recording to a four track or whatever uh and those those albums sound so balanced and so brilliantly recorded but the the truth is why do they sound so good because the musicians were great they knew where to stand to balance themselves um and uh, apparently um one of the greatest blues albums is bb king live at the regal uh, it is standalone one of the best 
blues albums that there is and it's a live album and legend has it that whole album was recorded through the microphone that bb was singing through so there's one microphone in the center of the stage and it records the whole band playing and bb king's voice and that's the recording that we have on the record that's amazing, amazing. i haven't heard that story but uh understanding how these things happen that uh, that's probably more true than just purely folklore yeah so. it's it's using your ears instead of your eyes and that's the big difference between people who learn to record now and people who were recording back then well you know i got my my what i consider my real start in multi track uh using cassette uh multi tracks yeah. i had a fostex uh x15 nah, back in the day and yeah me too and i learned how uh you know we use the beatles as a comparison uh, yep. I learned why it was important for me to understand where, when I had to bounce stuff and move them around, where I had to have instruments sit in the mix ahead of time, because I couldn't go back and do it again once I bounced yeah. it and uh, yep. repurposed an earlier track. Those those skills and those things that you learn, woodshedding like that, yeah. serve you when you get to something like the the R16 that Zoom has. Yeah. When you start applying some of those techniques to that, people are amazed. They they can't believe you got so much out of it. But it really goes back to those early days. Uh, think of it as the minor leagues, where you're just uh, coming up through the ranks and learning your craft. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. You have a, a very similar story to mine in in the process that you went from using multiple cassette players to do stuff to doing four track cassette to doing eventually, you know, really unlimited tracks on some of this new hardware stuff like the, the zoom series is completely unlimited tracks. You're not limited uh, on what you actually record. So yeah, pretty fascinating. Okay. So you learned, you, you had not quite university, uh, education you had you called it a level so for yeah. our non-uk listeners what is a level in in the so, education scheme yeah so a level uh, so i would have normally finished school at the age of 16 uh, and at that point you can go off into the world and you can you can get a job an apprenticeship or you can go on to do a college course or, or an a level course so i stayed on at the school where I'd attended uh, and moved into what we call the sixth form, which is two years after compulsory education finishes at the age of 16. So through my, through my ages of 17 and 18, I did two years uh, studying English art and history and, um, and, and, and took the, did the coursework, took the exam and, um, and I went and got the job of my dreams and became a window cleaner. <laughs> but but the stuff um, dreams are made of <laughs> but what i didn't know then was that i was actually being prepared for what i do now and you know i window clean for a good 10 well wow what was it 10 15 years maybe uh before i started doing music uh full time so um so don't um don't presume to know exactly what what's happening in, in your life because it's not till you look back that you realize how you were being prepared for what was ahead 
That's that's great. Okay, so we've sort of covered current stuff. We've covered things that you know that led up to it. So uh, if we're going back to your childhood a little bit, what was that like? Um, do you have uh, siblings? Yeah, yeah. Do you have you know what are your parents like, and how did that affect you um, with your music? Yeah, I have I have two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, and um, my older brother uh unknowingly was probably one of the key musical influences of my childhood simply because he i mean he played saxophone um uh, and he still plays harmonica michael uh, and he um but he would listen to music so he would buy cassettes of the latest rock band that is coming out he'd listen to blues music and all sorts of stuff so i would hear music coming from his bedroom and I was being schooled then, you know, so and and that was great. Uh, my younger brother, Jonathan, he's a great drummer. And we started our first band and it was just me and him. So we were, you know, we were trying to be Van Halen, you know, a drummer, drummer and a guitar player, you know. And um, so so that was a huge difference. Both my parents uh, played a little bit. So there was acoustic guitar in the house because they, they both just strummed and just did uh, folk songs, Beatles songs. And um, so it was a very musical house, uh, not necessarily virtuoso musicians, but music uh, was was a was a real important thing. We never had lots of money and uh, we were probably one of the last people to get a VHS video player. However, we were probably one of the first people in our community to get a CD player because that was a game changer. And um, so music was was more important than uh, than visual obviously <laughs> wow yes i can see that happening for a lot of people um, yeah we uh we adopted a vhs player i think late in the game too uh in mm. my family and i think the first cd player i had was a portable one that it was terrible i thought i could you know play it in my guitar while i drove down the road but any bounce <laughs> and it just you know there was no way to use that thing unless it was sitting on a tabletop, um, yeah. you know, as it was. Yeah. So did your parents sing also? Or did they just sort of play around at home and it was casual? Yeah, my, yeah no, my mum would sing a little bit, but it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't in any professional capacity. It was literally just, um, you know, uh, just pick up a guitar and just strum through a, a Beatles um, guitar book, uh, which, which we had. Um, so there was no, there was no performance side to, uh, to my musical upbringing that just happened out of necessity because I started to play and then I just wanted to, uh, uh, you get to the point where you just want to perform the songs that you're learning and, uh, that, that just, it just happens. And that was, uh, that was a great thing. So just getting on stage at like, um, school, uh, parties and things like that. What do you consider uh, your first public performance? Musically first, speaking, of course. My first public performance was at a uh, some friends of the family had had put together a like a community party where everybody came, brought some food, and they put on different entertainments. Um, uh, you know, somebody get up and tell jokes, somebody do a dance, and all that kind of thing. And uh, me and uh, a friend of mine, Adrian, who was on the drums, we got up and we played. Uh, I wasn't singing then; I was just playing guitar. 
We played uh, Metallica's "Nothing Else Matters." Uh, we played <laughs> purple. We played Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix "Purple Haze," and then we did uh, "Wild Thing," the Trog song, but the Hendrix version. And my younger brother, who who then became the drummer, um, he was about. Uh, I think he must. I was thirteen, so he must have been about nine or ten. And he came. <laughs> he came up, grabbed the microphone. And we were just playing Wild Thing, and he starts singing the song uh, in his nine-year-old voice, you know. And um, it was great. It was just a real great, great moment. And um, uh, he would probably tell you that he can't sing, and I, I probably tend to agree. Uh, but it was just a wonderful moment. So that was probably my, my first ever appearance, yeah. And how old were you then? So I was 13. 13. So there's four years between you and your younger brother. What's the yeah. difference between you and your older brother? Exactly the same, four years. Four years. Uh, that's that's quite a spread. I have a, a, a sister that's four years younger than me, and then I have an older brother and sister that are all... My sister is three years older, my brother's a year and a half, so it almost felt mm. like a different family in our house because the three of us were real close in age, yeah. and then my, my younger sister comes along, but... I'm finding that's more common than not that there is yeah. there is three and four year age gaps in in families. Yeah, I think it was popular there. So this is something that might um, I think some listeners might find interesting. Uh, recently, I don't know if you have it in the UK. The uh, Amazon stood up a a service called Curiosity Stream, and it okay. is it's a uh, a service with just documentaries and so we watched one on Wales and they were talking about in Wales um, the desire for the Welsh to keep their language alive so mm. uh, do you speak Welsh I do I uh, I learned to speak it because I, I I'm originally from the Midlands area of the UK uh, but obviously my partner she is she's born and bred here so she's fluent Welsh the kids are fluent Welsh uh, and so I just learnt it to be able to know when they were talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> so so I speak it. And again, once again, I didn't know what I was being trained for because the job that I spoke about earlier where I go into schools and, and work with young kids uh, and, and trying to help them through the, the medium of songwriting and music, uh, some of those courses I have to conduct in Welsh or at least bilingual. And uh, I would never have been able to do that uh, if it wasn't for being with my partner because um so but it is it, it's a great language uh it is um very commonly spoken where i live uh and uh and there are pockets of it throughout throughout the world uh but it there a lot of the youngsters are leaving school and they're moving to liverpool or manchester or london and they're not taking the language with them they they drop it which is a shame because it's a, it's a, it's an incredible language one of the oldest languages uh that that there is as well well the reason i ask is because i wanted to know have you written any songs in welsh right now <laughs> when i when i took a welsh course um when i first started learning the language uh, we had uh, I had a tutor called Brenda, and um, it was a brilliant course, uh, and uh, you know it really taught the language really well in a conversational manner. And I did. I wrote my first Welsh song called Brenda, and it was um, and it, it was a song about the, about the tutor uh, and um, uh, and about the whole process of learning. 
Uh, and yeah, and I, and I still learn Welsh songs because when I teach at the Rock Project last uh, last month, month before, uh, one of the students requested a, a Welsh rock song, so we learnt it. Uh, and I'm a vocal tutor on that course, so uh, I had to learn how to how to do it. And um, it, I won't lie, it's a challenge, uh, but it's a great challenge to take. Uh, that's great. Anyway, I just thought I'd ask that because, of course, you're in Wales, and uh, I wasn't yeah. sure if you were Welsh or if you uh, actually were raised in the UK because your accent does have a lot of Liverpool-type hmm. uh, inflections to it. So, yeah. So I, I'm Midland. So I'm more uh, I'm more Ozzy Osbourne uh, okay. than Paul McCartney. So. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah, and I, I don't listen to too much of Ozzy Osbourne, but people are going to know that uh, much better than I am. So you provided one more song. I'd like to do it because your music is just wonderful. It's called Chasing you. Your Ghost. Uh, yeah. What can you tell me about that song for our listeners? So one of the, a couple of interesting things happened when I started meeting people on, on Facebook. I, I met up with a group of a writer called Dave Young, and uh, he had a project called Blackwater Lake from Arizona, and we started writing together, and that really opened the doors. We still write together, and the band are still releasing stuff and uh, and trying to trying to gig out there in Arizona. Uh, and by doing that, it opened up the way for me to meet other writers and to start writing. And one of the guys that I uh, started writing with was a guy called Ron Hirsch, and um, uh, he he came up with this idea. Um, and I think the original idea was was that was what I needed the most. I think was his original idea. Um, uh, but him and a friend of his, Brent Hoffer, they we the three of us started writing on that song together, and it became evident. One of the important things uh, that I've learned over the last couple of years is the power of a hook and the power of a title. You want to get a title that is original, if possible. Uh, and is something that can stick in people's heads. And as we were listening to the song, as I was putting music to it, um, it became evident that the real hook needed to be chasing your ghost. So we moved that line around in the chorus, so it became more of a more of a hook instead of just a passing line. And um, and it, I guess it's kind of about um, about the end of a relationship, trying to get away from things and move on. But you're always haunted by the the ghosts of. Uh, of your past in a good way and sometimes in a bad way and uh that that song was uh was about that good good fun song to write that was well okay let's uh without further ado we're gonna uh cue that up and play it and we'll chat about it afterwards <laughs> You don't know how it feels Inside this ragged frame If you did, you would know Why I feel this pain All my life I've been chasing I've been chasing your ghost and all I need is your love It's what I needed the most But I'm still chasing your ghost 
couldn't be more western if you'd planned it that's a fun <laughs> song you. and you know i was thinking a song like that would have fit so great in some some of the more uh contemporary westerns that have gone on in recent years it's uh you definitely caught the uh it you know the the twangy guitar in the beginning was very much uh a send-up to the good the bad and the ugly for example, oh, yeah. you know. So I remember reading on your Facebook page that uh, you wanted that Western feel in particular. So what led to that? Well, it was kind of um, uh, Ron uh, had had written uh, that the way it came out, and it just kind of it, it lent itself towards that. And I just heard this Western sound, and actually Brent Hoffer as well, who was uh, who was involved in that. He he definitely heard that sound, and so. Yeah, so we we just um, uh, we we put that that sound to it, and it just had that feel to it as well. And also, I'd been listening to a guy called Jack Savaretti, and um, he he used uh, that kind of feel to it, and um, and we nicked it. <laughs> well, it's a fun song, a good song. It invokes a, a, an image, especially with that Western feel. You know, if you think of it like uh, think of like the remake of True Grit. It was a yeah. little more uh, of a contemporary kind of a Western, of course, uh, had some amazing um, actors and actresses in it. 
that song would have worked in that. Um, it would have worked in Django. Yeah. Uh, if you remember, did, have you seen Django? No, I, I know the film that you mean. And I, I, I think the whole visual things work really well with music. They go hand in hand. Uh, sometimes something visual will create music and sometimes music can create the visual and um, it's, it's the arts. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. This song, this song easily could have been in Django too, because it, it was Western and it was edgy enough that uh, it had the right color for it, for that kind yeah. of movie anyway. So, uh, Hey, this song could be picked up by a, a movie company to put in all kinds of stuff. So, do you yeah, have it out so. there in the sync world? Yeah, I do. I've got a I've got a sync agent that's a, that's working for me, uh, finding pitches and things like that. And so, um, yeah, we're every time an opportunity comes up, uh, that's certainly one of the songs that that goes forward. So, what do sync agents need to take music and run with it to try and place it? Well. <sighs> They need a quality recording first of all, uh, because when you're when you're producing a recording to pitch to an artist or a publisher, yes, it needs to be good quality, uh, but it doesn't necessarily uh, need to be broadcast quality. Uh, however, when it's something for sync, you've got to get that recording so that it is um, that it is broadcast quality. That that is an important step. Um, but the difference between a, I guess a, a pop song. Uh, and a sync song is it it's all about the vibe in fact the vibe often is more important than the lyric when it comes to a sync song uh, because it's going to fit in a situation which is a scene or or a moment and it has to have that feel to it so when i'm working on a sync song I'm I'm always focused on the emotion of a song anyway, but I am much more focused on the emotion of a song when I'm when I'm doing something for sync. Okay, yeah, that's kind of that whole world's a mystery to me. So it that mm. benefits me as much as anybody listening. So Good. that that brings us probably to the conclusion here. Is there anything that uh, you need to add that we think is going to be of value to people that are surely going to become fans of yours? Well, I hope so. I mean, um, really, I think that the best thing, especially at the moment, is that uh, with with the world being difficult for musicians and it's difficult to get out and do gigs, uh, is for people to just come and find uh, come and find us online. Um, so you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, uh, and uh, just look for Paul DiMarco Music. That's where you'll find me. Uh, and and reach out. You know, just just just. Um, uh, I, I respond to everything that people say. I've got a community on Facebook called um, Songwriting, Recording and Production with Paul DiMarco, uh, where I offer the help that people need as well uh, to to uh, to benefit from the experience that I've picked up along the way. And yeah, like I say, it's difficult at the moment for musicians. Uh, so if there's anything that we want, it's just for people to enjoy our music. So uh, So come find us reach out and uh, let us know what you feel about it and uh, we'll we'll respond by creating more content. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. So let's just make sure that people understand. Paul DeMarco, can they just do a search on Facebook and find you? Yeah, there's not there's not many Paul DeMarcos uh, on Facebook, uh, but if you put in Paul DeMarco Music, um, you'll, you'll find my page 
uh, and um, yeah, I think you're you're pretty sure to uh, to come across it. You can also uh, look at um, pauldemarcomusic.com, which is my website, and you'll find all the links to those as well. So and Demarco is D E M A R C O. Just in case people are wondering uh, that, it's pauldemarcomusic.com. Uh, he has a dot com. He also the same name for Facebook. Do you have uh, an Instagram account also? Yep, Instagram is also Paul DeMarco Music. Okay, well that sounds wonderful, and I'm sure you're going to get some uh, some fans from this. I know that um, we've driven traffic to a few of the people that have been interviewed at this point. Uh, they're not just people that are sort of part of your your own fan stream there there will be other people great thank you Tim. so paul absolutely a pleasure talking with you and we wish you the best in your uh music career we'll catch up with you at some later date to see how things are going i've thoroughly enjoyed this it's been a long uh quite a long interview but uh, it'll edit down to something um still large but fun completely fun and, and engaging so with that, I'm going to bid you adieu. I'll talk with the uh, audience just briefly as we exit, and uh, we'll catch up with you in the future. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. Thanks once again to everyone for listening to our extended interview with Paul DeMarco. We had a great time. We hope you did too. Become a fan of his. Visit all his social outlet sites and subscribe and ring bells and be a part of the action that is Paul DeMarco. Remember, this is Local Open Mic. The world is listening. Listening.